You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Christmas is next Sunday, and we'll be doing something a little different for that Sunday, but we're going to be finishing up the Bread of Life Discourse in John 6 today. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, it is to your word that we now turn, and our confident expectation is that you are going to use your word to equip us and to edify us and to encourage us. We pray, O God, that you would remind us again of how blessed we are because of all that you have done. And give us a fond affection for and appreciation for your Son who has incarnated and purchased all of this on behalf of those whom you have loved and given to him. We thank you for such a terrific salvation, ineffable beyond words, indescribable truly. We pray, O God, that you would give us a glimpse of that and bless this time as we study these things in your word. For Christ's sake and in his name, amen. This last week, we, um, in our household, with our family, we finished up our time that we've been spending in Hebrews chapter 11, looking at the nature of faith and all of the things that God has done uh, through faith and because of faith and to the people who had the type of faith that he gave to them and the type of faith that he requires. We've seen demonstrated in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Noah and Moses and Noah's parents and Rahab and all of the rest of those, the type of faith that saves and all of the blessings that God brings with that faith and all that God does through that. And so in finishing up Hebrews chapter 11, I I read these words to my children. um, And I love the way that the author of Hebrews says this. After giving all of these examples, like a good preacher, he simply says, I'm running out of time, and time does not permit me to tell you of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. And then he goes on to describe the life and the faith of these men. Listen to what he says who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment, They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And I read that to my children and then I asked them, does that sound like a passage that you would read quoted in Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now? It's almost humorous, isn't it? Of course, you wouldn't read that in your best life now. But yet, that is the, your best life now is exactly people's perception of what faith is and what faith brings us. It's almost, with our, from our modern mindset, it's almost odd that we would read in a chapter commending faith, that we would read that the men of faith were men who wandered about in deserts and holes in the ground and were ill-treated and imprisoned and sword, uh, faced the sword and temptations and trials and tribulations and sufferings of every kind. In fact, we read a passage like Hebrews chapter 11 and we would ask ourselves, what then is the blessing of faith? Why would I want the type of faith that Abraham had? 
and Daniel had. Why wouldn't I want the type of faith that men like Joel Osteen promote? A faith that promises health and wealth and prosperity and your best life now. That is what most people expect. They expect that the faith that we have is going to bring us blessings in the present, in this life. That if we have faith, God will give us better houses and better cars and better jobs and better parking spots at that job and better better houses and better marriage and better families and more obedient children and better circumstances and better health and better food and better ability to eat that food and better everything if I just have faith. And yet we read in Hebrews chapter 11, that's not what you should expect at all. In fact, the men who had faith were men who were ill-treated, men of whom this world is not worthy. See, the world looked at those men and said, you are not worthy of us. And the reality was just the opposite. The world was not worthy of those men. Those men stood out. And what did they get for it? Ill treatment. So what then is the blessing of faith? Why would I want that kind of faith? Why would I want the kind of faith that promises me temptation and the sword and to be ill treated? And what we saw as we worked our way through Hebrews, the answer to it is this. All of those men from the beginning of Hebrews chapter 11 all the way through the end of chapter 11, all of those men looked forward to the blessings not in this life, but in the life to come. That was what they were looking toward. They were looking for a city whose maker and builder is God. They were looking to the eternal reward. In fact, at the end of Hebrews chapter 11, we read this. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So they didn't actually get what they were promised, but they waited and they were faithful all the way to the end of their life, looking for the reward that was to come. See, friends, all of the blessings that come with true faith, all of the blessings that are stored up and reserved for us, primarily are not anything that has to do with this life. They are the blessings of the life to come. Every good thing that you enjoy in this life, every good thing, whether it is a nice house or a nice car or a nice family or a nice family or an obedient kids or a lovely wife or a lovely husband, every single blessing that you enjoy in this life is merely a token, a sign blessing, something that points you to something greater that is to come, a reward in the next life, not in this one. Our faith holds out and holds on to what we are promised to be rewarded in the life to come, not what we are supposedly think we ought to get in this life. The Bible is filled with all kinds of promises to those who have faith, to those who behold the Son and believe on Him. And we have seen a lot of those blessings and those promises in John chapter 6. Promises that all that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. Promises that the Son will keep them. That the Son, that the Father will draw them to the Son. That the Son Himself will give them eternal life. The Son will give His flesh for their life so that they can have life. The Son would give them eternal life and then raise them up on the last day. All of those blessings in John chapter 6. And we've looked at them as we've gone through the bread of life discourse in John 6. And we're finishing up today looking at verses 52 to 58. So we've kind of dealt with a lot of the, dealt, dealed. We have dealt with a lot of the preparatory issues in John 6. Does it refer to the mass? What is it referring to? And I asked you last week to consider this. Why is it that Jesus chose such an offensive message? An offensive metaphor? This whole notion of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Why did Jesus choose that offensive metaphor? Now just out of curiosity, how many of you actually gave that some thought this last week? Okay, good, about 10% of you, just like high school, right? You give homework, about 10% of them do the homework. I was in high school to make you feel better, a little bit better. I was among the 90%, not the 10%. When the teacher said, how many of you did your homework assignment? 
I was never the guy that raised his hand at all. So I don't know if I'm in good company or you're in good company. I'm probably in good company. Most of you didn't even give that some thought. How many of you, of those who did give that some thought, how many of you figured out what the connection is between the metaphor and the timing of this discourse? Anybody? Kathy? This is usually not an interactive forum, but I'm curious. Go ahead. Okay, they were told in the Old Testament not to eat blood. There is, and we're going to get into that, there is a connection between the timing of this discourse, when Jesus said this, and the metaphor that he uses. Let's deal first of all with the fact that it was an offensive metaphor. The whole notion of eating flesh and drinking blood was to the Jews something utterly reprehensible. You and I, we talk about eating flesh and drinking blood, and we think we might be describing a perfectly done steak. But to a Jew, no such thing existed. They would never have thought of eating any flesh that was even near medium rare or rare. They would never have thought of drinking blood or or having that as part of their dinner at all. It was an incredibly offensive metaphor to speak of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. So why then would Jesus use it? In Leviticus chapter 17, this does not have to do yet with the timing of the discourse, but just listen. This is how the, the law dealt with the subject of blood and rare meat. Leviticus chapter 17, the law said, And any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Pause there for just a second. That man, you would be excluded from all of the blessings that came with being part of the covenant people of God, Old Testament Israel. You would be cut off from that, excluded as an outsider, treated as a mere Gentile, an apostate, Somebody who was not worthy and did not deserve any of those blessings. Somebody who was not in a a sphere or an area where you could receive any of those blessings. You'd be cut off, excluded. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, No person among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. So when any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them in hunting catches a beast or a bird which may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, you are not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is in its blood, and whoever eats it shall be cut off. End quote. Leviticus 17, 10-14. So the law had stipulations about eating flesh and eating the flesh and the blood and drinking blood and having to do with blood and even handled how to deal with blood if you catch an animal or a bird that you can eat. You were to spill its blood and drain the blood out and then cover the blood with earth. No Jew would have thought of blood or rare meat as being in any way edible or even appealing. It was reprehensible to them because blood was given to them, the symbol of blood was given to them to speak of sacrifice and atonement. And when some, something shed its blood, the life was being drained out of that animal, and the connection between that animal and the shedding of its blood and the shedding and, and the giving of atonement is this. An innocent animal had to die in the place of a sinner. So when an innocent animal shed its blood to die in the place of a sinner as a sacrifice, the blood and the life that was came out of that animal with the blood was to remind them that in the place of sinners, something innocent must die. So to a Jew, flesh and blood, the giving of flesh and the sacrifice and the spilling of blood in that sacrifice spoke of innocent life being poured out and shed and given 
for as a substitute for the life of the sinner. It was never intended to be eaten. And yet Jesus presses the metaphor of eating the flesh and drinking the blood, knowing how offensive it would be to the Jews. Verse 59 says this was given in a synagogue. Of all the places to give a metaphor like this in a synagogue, and before all people of Jews whose law said this in Leviticus 17, how offensive can you be? And yet, as hostile as they were and as offensive as this is, you'll notice that Jesus does not in any way mollify his critics or soften it or tone it down. Now, why? Why? Blood was to speak of sacrifice, and you and I speak of blood in that way today. We, we say, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb, right? What do we mean by that? Has the blood of Christ, of Calvary, atoned for your sins? We use blood as sort of a spiritual shorthand to speak of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross in the place of sinners as a vicarious, substitutionary atonement for sinners. And we use the term blood in that way. The New Testament does. Ephesians 1.7, him we have redemption through his blood. Ephesians 2.13 says, in Christ Jesus we were formerly far off, but we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Colossians 1.20 speaks of us being reconciled by his blood. Sort of spiritual shorthand to speak of the sacrifice of the death of Christ. In the death of Christ on the cross, through his blood, these things have been done. So what is the connection with the timing of this metaphor and the use of blood in eating flesh and drinking blood? Luke, did you raise your hand? Passover. Did you go all the way back? you got to go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 6, verse 4, to get it. Now the feast of the Jews, the Passover, was near. And I told you when we mentioned that back in verse 4 that that's more than just John's way of sort of marking time. It's significant because the, the fact that the Passover was near explains... The whole mindset of the people explains why the crowd was following Jesus to begin with. These were people who were likely, a large crowd of them, 5,000 just men, on their way down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Many of them probably had their Passover lamb in tow, bringing that with them to sacrifice in the temple on Passover. And a year from this day, or from this time period, one year later, Jesus would be sacrificed or killed, crucified, on the Passover. So the Feast of the Jews, the Passover was at, was at hand. Now what were the Jews thinking of? These people, these crowd, the Jews in the synagogue, what was on their mind? They were thinking about being in bondage to Egypt and what God did to bring them out of Egypt. And how did God do that? God told them, after the, the tenth plague, God told them, you sacrifice the Passover lamb, you put its blood upon the doorposts and the, around your door, the death angel is going to come through and kill all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt of people and of animals. Every firstborn thing is going to die. But that angel will pass over your house and you will be safe if you will shed the blood of that lamb and appropriate that blood by applying it to the doorway of your house. And later that night, they had to take the flesh of that Passover lamb and do what with it? Eat it. That was their meal. So what are the Jews thinking about? The Exodus... God providing bread for the people in the wilderness after the Exodus. How did God bring them out through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb? The blood of that lamb had to be applied. The flesh of that lamb had to be eaten. It had to be taken themselves. And every ear, everybody who had ears to hear and everybody who had eyes to see, every Jew should there listening to that should have made the connection in his mind between Jesus and the Passover lamb. Because Christ is our Passover who was sacrificed for us. And this is the message of eating the flesh and drinking the blood. Listen, that just as the blood of the Passover lamb had to be shed for them and applied, and just as the flesh of that Passover lamb had to be eaten themselves personally, so must the blood of Christ be appropriated by faith, and so must the flesh that he is going to give be spiritually eaten for them to have life. That's the connection. 
Passover and the eating of the flesh and the drinking of the blood. And every Jew there should have understood Jesus was equating himself with the Passover lamb and saying, just as the children of Israel were delivered from their bondage in Egypt by appropriating the Passover lamb, so the children of God, those given by the Father to the Son, will be delivered from their sin and their bondage and the wrath of God by appropriating the sacrifice that I will give for the life of the world. Do you guys see the connection? There is a second reason why I think Jesus uses such an offensive metaphor, and it's this. It's an offensive metaphor. It's an offensive message. This is an offensive message to say to the Jews, I'm your Messiah, and I'm your sacrifice. The message of the cross is an offensive message, and the reason Jesus doesn't remove the offense of the message is because if you remove the offense of the message, you remove the power of the message. Because the power of the message is in its offensive elements. Namely, the sacrifice, the suffering, and the bleeding and dying Messiah that Christ was. 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says, We preach Christ to the Jews a what? An offense. And to the Greeks, it's foolishness. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, or 5, verse 11, that the message of the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews. And herein is the offense of the gospel message. The offense of the gospel message to a Jew was this. Your Messiah, whom you expect to be king, is instead going to be a bleeding, bloody, bruised, broken, cursed, dying the death of a criminal in the place of criminals. That is your anointed one. That to a Jew was one of the most offensive things you could say. As a king, they expected him to be a king. But a bloody sacrifice, a bloody Messiah, hanging on a tree, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, our Messiah, our anointed one, the son of David, the descendant of Abraham, the one who would bring all of the blessings of God to our nation, our future king, our future ruler, hanging on a tree, cursed of God, dying with common criminals in the place of criminals, that's offensive to a Jew. But yet that is the very message that they must embrace if they are to be saved, right? You can't remove the offensive element of that and present it to a Jew and expect that a Jew could get saved by it, or a Gentile for that matter. Nobody could get saved if you take away the message of the cross and the offensive element of it. This is the point. You must, Jesus is saying this, you must be willing to embrace me, not as king, like they did in verse 15, not as king, but as your bloody sacrifice for sin, as the one who will offer himself in your stead, as the one who will die a criminal's death in the place of criminals, with criminals, a bloody substitute and sacrifice for sin. That may offend you, but you cannot get around it. You must embrace the, the very thing that is offensive if you are to have eternal life. Does that make sense? They had to be willing to accept him on his terms. What are his terms? A sacrifice for your sin. And if you will not have him on those terms, you cannot have him. He will not be your king, and he will not provide you with manna, and he's not going to give you all the freebies and the benefits of life. You take him on his terms, and what are his terms? A sacrifice for sin. Does that offend you, that you're a sinner, and that he had to die in your place? That's the offense of the cross. Christianity is a bloody religion. In every sense of the word, it is blood from first to last. The Old Testament was bloody. It was the shedding of blood every day in the temple. Blood was spilt, and it was a constant reminder of sin. Every day in the temple, every day in the tabernacle, the blood was spilt and the blood was there. The priests were covered with blood. All the implements of the temple were covered with blood. And it was a constant reminder to everybody of the cost and the seriousness and the soberness of sin. And then Christ comes into the world and he says to them, 
you must eat my flesh and you must drink my blood. That is going to be offensive to you, but you must embrace the very thing that is an offense to you if you are to have eternal life and if I am to raise you up on the last day. You must take me on my terms, and that is as a bloody sacrifice for your sins. If you remove the blood from Christianity, you have no Christianity. If you remove the cross and its offensive message, and if you remove the vicarious substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ through blood, you have destroyed Christianity. Many people are willing to say, I will take Jesus. I like the Jesus notion, the Jesus idea. I'm all hip with him being a a neat teacher and a great guy and a good moral person to give me moral principles to live by, but I don't have any room for the blood and the nastiness of the cross and Good Friday and the suffering and the sacrifice and the death and all of that. I'm not, I'm not into that. Well, they do not have the Jesus of the Bible. Remove the cross and you have no Christianity left because Christianity is the cross. It is blood. It is sacrifice. As offensive and nauseating as that may be to you, you must be willing to embrace that if you are to have eternal life. Now, In John chapter 6, there are four blessings that will come to those who will embrace this offensive metaphor. Those who will eat the flesh of the Son of God and drink His blood and appropriate His flesh and blood, just like the Israelites appropriated the blood and the flesh of the Passover lamb, four benefits or blessings. They are in verses 52 to 58. We're not going to take as long as you might think to go through these four things because really this is the conclusion of the bread of life discourse. And so what Jesus is doing is he is sort of tying together everything we have already talked about all the way through the discourse. He's bringing that all together and in sort of a point-by-point way, he is reminding and summing up the whole message of the bread of life discourse in one final appeal to these Jews to believe upon him and to trust in him. Verse 52, the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever." There are four benefits or blessings. What is the what is the benefit of faith, you might ask, if it's just imprisonment and ill treatment and scourgings and mockings and everything we're told in Hebrews chapter 11? What then are the blessings that really come to those who trust in this bloody sacrifice? Four of them. The first is life. Life, verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. We don't need to spend a lot of time on this because we've already talked about spiritual life all the way through the passage, haven't we? We've dealt with the issue of spiritual life, eternal life. We know that this life is spiritual life. We know that this life is eternal life. It can't be forfeited. It can't be given back. It can't be taken away. It can't be lost. It's eternal life. We know that this is a life that begins now. It is a quality of life. It is a life that begins now and continues with us all the way through eternity. It is a life that comes from the Father who has life in Himself. It is a life that is given to those whom the Father has given to the Son, who behold the Son and believe on Him. The life is given by Christ. The life is the precursor to being raised up on the last day. That's the life that's being described. When Jesus states it negatively, as He does in verse 53, you notice it's negative. Unless you do this, you do not have life in yourselves. That helps us to diagnose the condition of fallen man Without Christ, he is what? Dead. Not sick. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean we trade one kind of life for a different kind of life. It means we go from death to life. From spiritual death to life. It is moving from darkness to light. 
It is moving not from one kind of spiritual life to a different kind of spiritual life, but from deadness into life. You and I are born spiritually dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We have no ability to please God in any capacity whatsoever. Man has no ability to tap into spiritual life, to generate spiritual life, to create spiritual life, to do anything even worthy of spiritual life because he is dead. And if you will not taste the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood and appropriate his sacrifice, you will remain dead in your sins and without any spiritual life whatsoever. By the way, that is an offensive message too, isn't it? Because unbelievers don't like to be told they're spiritually dead. You know what unbelievers like to believe? They like to believe that they have spiritual life and that they can tap into that spiritual life and be one with God. And they can do it through Jesus or Buddha or Muhammad or any other avatar that they want to name. And that they can have their own personal relationship with God in whatever that way that they want and they can experience God and they're full of spiritual life and they can tap into that higher plane. That's what an unbeliever likes to believe, but an unbeliever must be told you're dead. In fact, unless you are willing to admit that you're dead, you can't live. You have to be willing to admit, I am a dead sinner. Before Christ will give you life, you have to come to that point of admitting that. You're spiritually dead. The second blessing that comes to the people of God who believe upon Christ, behold the Son and believe in Him, is in verse 54. It's resurrection. First life, then resurrection. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We don't need to take much time on this one either because we've already talked about what it means to be raised up on the last day, haven't we? We've seen that three other times. We saw it in verse 39, we saw it in verse 40, we saw it in verse 44, and now we see it in verse 54. I've underlined it every time it occurs in the passage because it helps me to see that that phrase, I will raise him up on the last day, is what ties the entire discourse together. It reminds us that this group of people described at the end of this discourse, who eat the flesh and drink the blood, is the same group of people he's described at the beginning of the discourse. Those whom the Father gave to the Son who behold the Son and believe the Son, who come to the Son, whom the Son has promised on the power of His very name and His own integrity to raise up on the last day. Who is it that eats the flesh and drinks the blood of the Son of Man? Not everybody who partakes of communion. Everybody whom the Father has given to the Son. Those are the ones who eat and drink, and those are the ones whom the Father draws. Those are the ones that the Son is committed to save. Those are the ones that the Son will raise up on the last day. And Jesus is describing the bodily, physical resurrection that you and I will get on the last day. It is a resurrection to life when we get physical bodies, new bodies. I just read a Christmas letter from a friend here in this congregation last night where uh, he was describing his back hurting and being sore, but he said he was looking forward to getting his resurrection body someday. And I was reminded again about what I'm preaching this morning. I thought to myself, wow, how precious is that? Resurrection body on the last day. That eternal life and eternity is not a disembodied, mysterious state in the clouds of a bunch of spirit things sort of all mingling together. We get a new heavens and a new earth, a paradise which will never decay, never go out of existence, never deteriorate, never run down, and bodies that will fit for that eternal paradise. A new body. I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus says this four times. Almost as if one time is not enough, two times is not enough, three times is not enough, but four times we read it in this passage. What is the one of the greatest promises that you and I are given? We will receive eternal life, and we will be raised up on the last day. Bodily resurrection to eternal life. Eternity in a body. If you understand what that means, that has to thrill your heart. Eternal life in a body for all of eternity, a body that will never decay. That's the second blessing. The third one is satisfaction. Verse 55. 
For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. True food and true drink. In contrast to the manna which the fathers ate and died. Remember, we've read that a couple times throughout the passage. He's reminding them of that. They came to him wanting bread. Give us more bread. Give us more food. And it was good yesterday. We want more today. And Jesus constantly has said, look, the, the bread that Moses gave you, the Moses gave your fathers, you ate that and you died. You died in the wilderness. But the bread that I'm offering you is true bread. It's real bread. It's the real deal. It's the noblest and highest of things. You will eat of it and you will never die. You will eat of it and you will never hunger. You will drink of me and you will never thirst. It is the true food. It is true drink. It is the true satisfaction of your deepest longings. Remember verse 35? Jesus is returning to what he said in verse 35. I'm the bread of life and he who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. Like he said to the woman, if you know, woman at the well, if you knew who it is that asked you for a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. You'd never thirst again. And she wanted that living water. And here Jesus is saying, once you eat of what I provide, you will never hunger for it again. Once you taste of the drink that I provide, and he's speaking in spiritual terms, you will never thirst for these things again. You say, but sometimes I do. Sometimes we do hunger and thirst, right? Never after eternal life because we have that. And we can't lose that. If we find that Jesus Christ does not satisfy us, it is not because of any deficiency in what he offers or provides. It is because of a deficiency and a defect in us. It is because we are content to seek satisfaction in lesser things and to be content with lesser things and to look elsewhere. We do like the prophet said, we hew cisterns for our water, leaky cisterns, which can never satisfy, never hold water. And we expect to find satisfaction in everything under the sun except the sun who provides us with the ultimate satisfaction. That is what Jesus said in verse 55. My flesh is true food. Once you have that, you will be satisfied. My blood is true drink. Once you have appropriated that, you will be satisfied. And if you keep your fixation on Him, you will find in Him the satisfaction for all your spiritual needs. That is His promise. Our defect is when we look elsewhere. J.C. Ryle, commenting on this, said this, in paraphrasing Jesus' words, my flesh is more truly food and my blood is more truly drink than any other food and drink can be. It is food and drink in the highest, fullest, noblest sense. Food and drink for the soul. Food and drink that satisfies. Food and drink that endures to everlasting life. End quote. That is what he's saying in verse 55. Now there is a fourth blessing. Not only life and resurrection and satisfaction, but union with Christ. Verse 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Talked about this a little bit last week. There is a real, spiritual, eternal, unbreakable union that exists between Christ and His people. Now, when do you think that that union began? Between Christ and His people. You might say, well, that began when I trusted Christ. That's when we were united. No, no, if you go back in the context, when did you become His? Verse 37, when the Father gave you to the Son, that's when you became His. That union goes back not to when you trusted Christ, but when the Father entrusted you to the Son and gave you to the Son. That is when you became His and you became His person. And He committed to come into the world to take upon Himself human flesh, to die in your place, to rise again, to give you life, and to raise you up at the last day with Him. Because the Father had committed you to Him. That's when your union began. You and I became one with Christ when the Father gave us to Him. And now those who eat the flesh and drink His blood... We are one with Him, we abide in Him, and He abides in us. John, the author of, the, of this gospel, is big on the subject of abiding. 
We're going to see it in chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, when this whole notion of abiding, us abiding in Him, like a like the vine, uh, like the vine abides in the branch, and like the branch gives life to the vine. John 15. We're going to see that fleshed out later on. You see it also in John's epistles. First John chapter 2, for instance, says this: The one who says he abides in Him ought himself also to walk in the same manner as he walked. As you, as, as for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Hear that language of abiding? 1 John 2.27 As for you, the anointing which you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. Now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him at His coming. 1 John 4, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. We have come to know and we believe the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. You hear that description of abiding? All the way through 1 John, John fleshes this idea of abiding out. You and I dwell in and abide in and get our life off of the Father and the Son. We saw that the sinner does not have life in himself. But guess who does have life in himself? John chapter 5, verse 26, Just as the Father has life in himself, so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. So the Father has life in himself. He is committed to the Son to have life in himself. And you and I abide in the Son. And by virtue of abiding in the Son, we have the life of the Son, which is the life of the Father. So the Father committed us to the Son and said, Son, give them life. Provide life for them. And the life that the Son has that He gives to us is the very life of the Father of life who has life in Himself. And so you and I, because we abide in the Son and we are in Him by virtue of faith, we have the life that the Son has. It is eternal life. It is never-ending life. It is spiritual life. That life comes from the Father. And not only that, but the reverse is true that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit abide in us. Not only individually, but corporately as a body. We are the dwelling place of God in the Spirit, Ephesians says. And the Spirit of God dwells in you and He gives you life. And where do you think your regeneration, your new life comes from? The Spirit of God. And the minute the Spirit of God possesses you and dwells in you and abides in you, the minute that happens, you are born again and that spiritual life will never, ever perish or dwindle away or be lost. Because the eternal life that you have, that you enjoy right now, is the very life of the Father. Do you think that that can be lost or taken away or die out? It cannot. See, once you understand the nature of the life that you and I have been given and the source of that life, you can in no way argue coherently that a Christian can lose their salvation. Why? Because the life that I have is not a life that I tap into by virtue of my choice. The life that I have is a life that the Son gets from the Father and He gives to His people because the Father has committed those people to the Son. Do you see how all of this whole context ties together so beautifully? We are united with Christ, and by virtue of that union, we have life. Look at verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will also live because of me. It's because of that abiding mentioned in verse 56 that you and I have the life that we have. Just as the Father lives and sent the Son, and He gave life to the Son, and the Son lives by virtue He shares the same divine life as the Father, as the Godhead, and you and I being united with the Son, we are in Him. He communicates that life to us because we abide in Him and He in us, and we will never perish and no one will ever snatch us out of His hands. The life that we have is an eternal life. So we have life, we have resurrection, we have satisfaction, and we have union with Christ. Those are amazing blessings, aren't they? 
Now, you'll notice that those are not your best life now type blessings, right? You read through the whole discourse, you don't... What? I came to Jesus for a better life. I came to Jesus for a better job. I came to Jesus for financial prosperity. I came to Jesus because I was told I'd get a better parking space and a better job and a better boss and a better wife and more obedient kids and a better car. I came to Jesus for all of those reasons, and yet you don't read anything of that in there, do you? Why not? Because Jesus knows, listen carefully, that you can eat of all of those blessings and still die, can't you? You can receive all of that and still perish in your sins. Everything in this text, everything in the context, everything in this chapter is way better than anything offered to us by the modern gospel. Way better than anything Joel Osteen can promise or any of his prosperity preachers and his ilk. Way better than all of those things. Because you can enjoy everything that this life offers you and still perish in your sins. But this is the magnificent greatness of our Savior. He gives us not what we think we need, but what we really, truly need. And this is the message of John 6. You and I need to trust Him to provide for us what we really, truly need and not come to Him expecting Him to give us what we think we need. He knows what we need, and that is what He offers. That is what He promises. And the one who beholds the Son and believes the Son and embraces the Son as He offers Himself in the passage as a sacrifice for sin will find that the blessings that He gives, life, resurrection, satisfaction, and union with Christ, are better than anything else that this world can afford. What He offers these people in John 6 was better than anything they even desired. Did they desire any of this? They didn't desire any of this. What did they want? Give us food. Give us manna. How about eternal life and resurrection and satisfaction and union with me? How are they going to respond to that? You know what they do later on in the chapter? Walk away. Just like that. Walk away. No thanks. I don't want those things. They had no desire for any of that. What he offered them was not what they wanted. But it was better than what they wanted. That's the magnificence of our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful to you that you know what we need. You know even what we think we need. And we do not always desire those things that we truly need. We are without you blind to the realities of our spiritual needs. We pray, O God, that you would remind us again of how awesome is our Savior and what you have provided in him. And help us, we pray, to find our satisfaction and our fulfillment and our spiritual delight in your Son. He is the source of all joy, all satisfaction, and all delight. And we want to find our delight in Him and what He provides and who He is. Such an indescribable Savior, such indescribable blessings. Help us, God, to keep an eternal perspective, to have the faith like in Hebrews chapter 11 that looks not to the benefits of this life, but beyond this life, to the life to come. And fix our hearts and affections on Christ. And help us to be desiring and finding our satisfaction in Him and never in lesser things. For the glory of Your name, for Your sake, and in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.